Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode four, the crossover, and I discuss short-term use of benzos. Today is October 26th, 2022. I have been dying to do this episode, honestly. Um, so it's less focused on my story, but more in general about crossover. The crossover, crossing over to diazepam, aka Valium. In terms of crossing over, um, it's very important that you know your equivalencies. And I am going to bring you back a bit in my story because it's 2016. I'm getting um, the first benzo that I've, I'm taking for a longer period of time, which is Lormitazepam. I had a prescription for four milligrams, and I learned throughout my process that that is 10 times more potent than diazepam. The lormetazepam becomes unavailable, and I'm put on 15 milligrams of fluorazepam. However, once I got the equivalencies, according to Ashton, four milligrams of lormetazepam would have been equal to 120 milligrams of fluorazepam. Now, in that kind of switch over the switching of me going from lormetazepam to fluorazepam i needed more and that i need 60 milligrams of fluorazepam now at that time my gp is furious with me how dare i take so much but if he had known his equivalencies he should have prescribed me 120 milligrams of fluorazepam so he had no right to be angry with me but you know i'm just at peace with the fact that he don't know shit so um, but still, I mean, th- these are important things that you need to know about your original benzo, as you will. Now, the Astra Manual is very clear about the motivation why one should cross over to diazepam because of its long half-life, meaning it stays in the blood very long. Um, so the withdrawal symptoms should be less severe than if you're tapering another benzo. That's the thought behind it. So if I did have a magical wand and I could do something with the fluorazepam, I just would have made these pills smaller, a lot smaller, just one milligram. So just again, just imagine me being able to get very small amounts of fluorazepam, which has a really long half-life. And I, I remember that I struggled very much. It was impossible to taper myself from 30 to 15 milligrams of fluorazepam, which now, you know, it makes total sense. Once you go lower, it's going to be harder. And these reductions at that point were just un- intolerable and I, I was unhealthy. It was not good for me. But, you know, just imagine me having access to fluorazepam, the drug that I am used to for years, and I have one milligrams of those in tablets or whatever, And when I was struggling at 30, which even that was, you know, too rapid, but still, okay, let's say I would have remained on 30 for a bit and stabilized, and then I would have gone to 29 and 28 and so forth. And granted, I may have had, you know, seizures or got really sick and super depressed. I'm not excluding anything, but I wouldn't have the crossover. I wouldn't have made the mistake of, you know, 
reinstating seven milligrams of diazepam, which was way too low because I wouldn't have to deal with this whole equivalency stuff because I was just on my original benzo. So it would have saved me so much agony. I'm, I'm sure of that. I'm pretty sure it would have, you know, I would have done better on fluorazepam. But now that I am on diazepam, I have to say I'm used to it now. And I'm happy that these tablets are available in smaller amounts. Um, but that's pretty much it. It's just practical bullshit <laughs> by pharmacies and wherever you live or money issues, something that I wasn't able to do that. Now back again to me and my story. So I was on fluorazepam, which has an even longer half-life than diazepam. So that doesn't go for me. I mean, that doesn't work for me in terms of argumentation why I should cross over. So theoretically, I could have just tapered my fluorazepam, be it that these capsules aren't available in smaller amounts. So this is a practical issue, right? So let's say I can, I'm fantasizing and I, I'm, I have magical powers and, but unfortunately not the power to cure me from benzo harm, but okay, let's go back in time. I would have definitely tapered my fluorazepam. Maybe I would have needed some additional adjacent medications for sleep. Who knows? I don't know about that, but I think I would have been posed with less challenges and less suffering if I was able to taper that. Now, reality is, again, these capsules are just not available in other kind of dosages. So if I'd known all of this before, first of all, I would have actually done a crossover. With me, it was like an instant switch. So that is a whole different thing. I would have done a crossover. Um, perhaps I would have tapered myself to an X point of fluorazepam. I'm thinking 30, 4 to 5 milligrams and then do the crossover. Um, back to general, generalization. Um, so... My thoughts, and I've read so many stories, I'm going to try to stay objective as possible in terms of crossing over and what I know, what I think you may, well, I think there's options. Let me say that first. There's individual options that you should be able to make in terms of crossing over or not crossing over. As I'm super happy with the Ashton Manual because it's the only thing we got, um, I get the motivation of crossing over to a long uh, long-acting benzodiazepine. I totally get it. However, being active on the boards, on benzo buddies, and just thinking about my own situation and how diazepam worked for me and works for me right now, I am convinced that this whole crossing over thing is severely underestimated. Severely. So this is not something you just do. It can have extreme challenges. And even though you are going from your original benzo to the diazepam, you will be in withdrawal of your original benzo. You will have to get used to a new benzo, which is Valium, diazepam. No easy task. No easy task at all. Now, a bit back to me where I just instantly switched to diazepam. So I cannot tell you what it's like to cross over. I cannot tell you that I got depressed because I was put on diazepam. It could be the case, but I will never know. I simply do not have the experience. So I will give my thoughts. I will give my everything. But bear in mind that I haven't done it. So I cannot say how it was like, anything like that. What I do know, though, is even that just instant switch was just bad. It was not a good thing uh, they had me do. 
but at the same time, it was a too low dose. Now, back to my story a little bit again, I tapered myself to 30 milligrams of fluorazepam from 90, but that was a month before I got the instant switch. So I was put on 50 milligrams of diazepam. I had, it was just awful, horrible, and basically almost led to my death because I was reacting so badly to diazepam that I decided to go cold turkey because it was just so awful. And that almost, you know, did not end well for me. Um, so a little bit further in my story, I have to take a benzo because else I will die. And I start taking seven milligrams of diazepam. I'm having months of benzo hell and seizures. I think mostly because of the low dose. Um, so that's kind of the end of my story. And I've never had a crossover, unfortunately, though, because I would have done that. Definitely, for sure. Unless they would have made fluorazepam in smaller amounts, then I would have never done it. So I will start with what I think are the pros of doing a conversion to diazepam. Well, like Ashton mentions, it has a very long half-life. Um, so I am thinking in the long term, in withdrawal, it, it can be helpful. It can maybe minimize withdrawal symptoms. You can still get very ill and very sick, but I think in the long run, it can be very helpful also because of the dosages because the smallest tablet of diazepam currently available is two milligrams. And it's going to be very hard to find a benzo in that kind of amount, in that kind of dosage. So in the long run, yes, I am just happy that I am on diazepam right now because I would have never been able to achieve this equivalency with my original benzo or perhaps any other benzo. So I am glad that I am on diazepam. Granted, I can still get very sick or I have been extremely sick on diazepam, but I'll never know if it was just probably withdrawal in my opinion. But um, maybe I was severely depressed because of diazepam. It's a possibility. I, I, I wasn't depressed on fluorazepam as I was on diazepam. We'll just never know. But personally, for me, I'm happy that I did eventually get on and get, got used to diazepam. Now I'm going to talk about the drawbacks, the cons of switching over to diazepam. Again, I feel it's greatly underestimated. People are saying that it is grueling doing this conversion. And there's just a lot of drawbacks, actually, maybe even more um, than there are pros. Um, for starters, um, this conversion, it can be so debilitating. You can get super depressed because all of these things are going on when you're converting. You're on two benzos. You're tapering your original benzo and you get sick from that and depressed from that and all these physical complaints. And then you have to get used to the diazepam. Again, just so underestimated, I think, even though I haven't done it. So it can be months of suffering and agony. And we shouldn't forget that, that, you know, I don't think we should talk about conversion casually because it can be a goal on its own. While you are converting, you are not getting lower amounts of benzos. You're not tapering benzos as a whole. You're tapering your original benzo, but you're just converting. And th this could take months, possibly. There are some schedules in the Astra manual, but we just simply do their schedules. And I'm very like, I'm all about their examples and you should tailor them to your individual needs and how you are responding to certain situations and benzos. 
Um, so it's just it, it, it's just a, a long time. It, it can take a long time to get used to diazepam. Some people say that they never do get used to it and try to they end up reinstating their original benzo. And all of this switching and back and forth, I don't think it's good for us. I think it makes us sick. You know, our body needs to readjust. And so it's just so challenging. It can, I think it can be so challenging just to do the crossover alone. And I've heard one specific story on Geraldine Burns podcast. I can't remember what her original benzo was, but she tapered that for a while. And then she did the crossover. It took her months and it was grueling. It was awful. So again, you know, um, let's say, for example, it, you, you never know this in advance, unfortunately, but let's say you need five years to taper your benzos. Um, is it worth it to be six months into like suffering and just being super sick just to get the, you know, rest of the years that you have to come more easier? So it's, it's just a very tough, tough choice. So what I'm what I have been reading on Benzo Buddies, and I agree with this actually, if you can, if there's an option for you to taper your original benzo, I would definitely go for that. I would do that. So back a, a bit to me, if um I, I I mean it's not impossible. I could have spent a fortune getting my pills compound for fluorazepam. So the way that it works in the Netherlands, so yes, we get care. We have a health insurance, which is obligated, and we pay quite a lot of money. Quite quite a bit of our income goes to that a month. Um, but there is access for us. However, I'm, I'm not really sure how America works, for example, but maybe you have to pay for everything in your GP, but maybe you'll have more options. If you're already spending money, you can just go to a pharmacy and say, look, I'm on 90 milligrams of lorazepam, and I want these made into one milligram pills. I don't know. I think I read someone who was tapering fluorazepam that way. Um, so it's also very circumstantial. Where are you living? What, what are your options? And then we have, I think, again, me, me in my opinion, um, we could have a, a potential group that has basically no option than to cross over. Because let's say you're on Xanax, like Xanax and Clonopin, so Al Alprozolam and Clonazepam, those are freaking potent benzos, about 20 times more potent than diazepam. So let's say you're on one milligram of Xanax. That equals 20 milligrams. Say you, I mean, I'm, I have been reading this a bit lately on, on, on the boards, people trying to taper their Xanax. But I would almost think in, in possibilities. I lack thinking in possibilities and options. But like, I don't know how long Xanax works, maybe two hours or three. I'm just, you know guessing here. Um, so how would one taper that? I'm seeing a lot of challenges because first of all, that would mean that you maybe you would have to take eight doses a day to taper your Xanax. Where, where are you going to sleep? So, I mean, that is just, wow, I wouldn't know how to do that. And because of, I, I think the smallest tablet of Xanax is a half a milligram. How are you going to make 0.0001 something tablets? or liquid, or how the F are you going to do that? Now, then we need to talk about clonazepam, clonopin. So I don't think this particular drug is being prescribed in the Netherlands, but I am reading a shit ton of stories about Americans and Canadians getting their clonazepam. Now, because I don't have any experience with clonazepam, I'm going to say this with a great humble opinion, but Heather Ashen actually specifies specifically 
mentions clonazepam, where in her experience, that particular drug seems to be particularly difficult to come off of. Now, what I've been reading on the boards is that um, I'm thinking most people that are on clonazepam, they taper that. And maybe that would be a good option. It has a longer half-life. I'm not really sure how long. So maybe one or two dosages a day would be okay. I'm just so, so, so happy that I'm not on clonazepam because it seems a very nasty, nasty drug. Maybe I would, I would guess it's the nastiest benzo out there. Next to Xanax maybe, but in terms of, you know, just complaints and symptoms, I just, I, I scared when I hear about clonazepam. So um, I do have to, I do want to mention this. So I, again, I don't know anything about clonazepam, no experience, but because Heather Ashton also specifically says that in her experience, this was way back, way back when she was saying that people were being crossed over to clonazepam instead of diazepam. Now, if you're not on clonazepam yet and you're not hooked, then I would want to go and switch to diazepam instead of clonazepam. Because I think Heather Ashton is onto something. I, I think it's valid. But again, I don't know anything. Um, but this would be my opinion. Now, something else that I think is very important in terms of the cons of crossing over is we have Ashton's equivalency chart. There's also a website called ClinCalc, which, give you a, which gives you a bit of a broader spectrum of the dosage that you should be considering in stating. But the thing is, we're just not completely sure sometimes. I know in Ashton's equivalency chart, there are a certain amount of medications, benzos, that have kind of a variation you know, between them. Like, for example, Xanax is just 20 times more potent, estimated. Um, I, I can't remember which one it was, but maybe the lower magnetazepam, which I just recently found out that this isn't even approved in the U.S., and just a few countries, including mine, maybe me, my country, the Netherlands, and another one. I was like, oh, I'm shocking, shocking that, you know, this drug is just not, not approved in a lot of countries. But okay, I think with the lormetazepam, it says like between one and two. So that would be either five or 10 milligrams of diazepam for one milligram of lormetazepam. Just this being said, we're just not completely sure what we need to do when we convert. So we, we're not always exactly sure the exact amount that we need or respond well to in terms of crossing over. So this is an additional kind of factor in terms of cons as far as I'm concerned because you're going to have to make a decision if you do convert um, or your doctor makes it for you. He's saying, okay, you're on this amount of Xanax, so I'm going to prescribe you this amount of Valium, Diazepam. But it could be too little. It could be too high. You could be over-sedated. There's all these complications when it comes to converting. Um, so again, this would be my opinion. If you can taper your original benzo concerning Half-Life and everything, taking everything into account, then I would definitely just do that. But... If you do convert, just be aware, it can be extremely difficult and you can suffer. So um, yeah, it's really rough, it's really hard. I mean, there are so many things that can happen during a crossover, before a crossover, after a crossover. I mean, there's millions of people getting benzos, so there will be a million scenarios and I'm just not able to describe so many different scenarios. However, I can imagine a scenario where you want to do the conversion you start it, 
and you get so sick, you get so deathly depressed and ill and all of these things that you're like, I don't know if I will survive this. I think I'm going to go back to my original benzo. This is an option. I think this happens. I think this actually just happens because it's just maybe intolerable getting used to the diazepam and you may actually be responding very, very, very poorly and just the agony is intolerable, so you may reinstate your original benzo. However, I mean, sometimes this this can be a choice between life and death. But again, going back and forth and doing new benzos, um, updosing, um, reducing, all of that will cause distress. So it's just so complicated, and I feel like I can talk about it for hours, but it doesn't grasp the the horrendous experience that one can have doing this or just coming off of benzos i mean words cannot describe the torture that someone could have because of benzos i've been there there's just no words it's intolerable it can be awful so theoretically a person is doing a crossover this could have been me if i if if, if i've attempted a crossover um and i'd be like oh my god i've never felt so unpleasantly high because of diazepam i feel sedated i feel horrible i feel i'm puking i'm i'm, I'm un unable to shit i could be it could be a thousand things going on and i could have reinstated my fluorazepam so that's a possibility but then i'd still probably be very ill from all the different benzos and just you know getting trauma from benzos um so i think if you go into um this option of converting i think that you have to prepare very very much so like mentally i if you're really keen on getting to the diazepam and you're like super motivated and but you know that you could possibly get very ill you're gonna have to have so much willpower and be so strong to kind of go through that horror possibly it might not be as bad but um just really knowing that, okay, so my goal now is to get myself used to diazepam. I may be super depressed. Maybe you'll need adjacent medicine for that. I'm, I'm not a big fan, honestly, about antidepressants, but I'll get to that some other time. But sometimes maybe it's a choice of life and death. Maybe you're just so extremely suicidal and depressed that you need to do that. But um, luckily, I've never had to. I kind of embrace my uh, depressions, but okay. Um, so yeah, just do not underestimate it. And your doctor should not underestimate it either. So they also should be aware that it may not work and that you may suffer greatly. And just it's just something not to be underestimated. I cannot emphasize this enough. And I also want to share the following. So I'm just going to share my experience, not a crossover, an instant switch, too low of a dose of diazepam. But I'll tell you this. I was never sick on fluorazepam. And I was very, very ill in the beginning on diazepam. You know, granted, it was a way too low dose. But as you've heard in my previous episodes, the first time that I took diazepam was the first taper, sort of first taper, was, it went miserably wrong. I don't really have a good recollection of that, but I just remember that I did not respond well on diazepam. Now, the second time, I got so sick. I got, like, high, and I'd never had that before in my life with benzos, that I got high. So, of course, again, I will never know but fluorazepam was something that I was used to for like five years. 
So, and the diazepam, maybe I was kind of hoping that it would make me sleep better. Obviously, it did not. <laughs> I was like, it's, the insomnia was just horrible for months. It was already bad, but it was so much worse because of withdrawal. But um, I think, and trying to think back hard, um, I think, so except, for, like, aside from the whole too low of a dose of, of benzos, I think it took me a very, very long time to adjust to diazepam. So, yeah, it's just, you know, they're just, they all work differently. So they may have some sort of equivalency in terms of benzos, but they still work differently. So, again, I will agree with kind of everyone on the forums right now stating, advising to taper your benzo, your original benzo, if you can. Now, just because it may have been super expensive for me to get compound fluorazepam pills, in hindsight, now I maybe would have, I probably would have done that, but that's always in hindsight, right? So I was like, no, it's going to be expensive. And, you know, diazepam tablets are, you know, smaller tablets, but never did I underestimate it that much in terms of how it would make me feel. So I think we that's a serious thing when people say that they're responding very poorly to diazepam. So I just, I, I you know, I, I can't emphasize this enough. It is just so underestimated. Um, it can be an option. Um, and this is kind of my thing again with how I was tapered and what I was told that I, I should have, I should have been told that the, the crossover was extremely, going to be extremely difficult. And if I would have gone through with, um, so even if I did a crossover, right, I'm trying to memorize and what it was like for me or, you know, um, I responded poorly as well because I got like high in a bad way. So this is just instant switch. But I, 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 I'm just uncertain if I would have done the 50 milligrams of diazepam and an X amount of fluorazepam I'm not sure if I would have not been sick. So, or at least I would have known like, okay, I really want to cross over to diazepam again. So I would have taken some fluorazepam in the beginning, but then, you know, I would be kind of, okay, I'm like high in a bad way, but maybe I have to, you know, weather this storm. I don't know. So it's just more complicated than... Then if I read the Ashton manual and, you know, again, bless her, but it's recommended, but I do not read in the Ashton manual that it can be severely challenging. And so that would be one of my additions to the Ashton manual. I mean, it's great, but there's just a lot of things that I personally would like to add. And one of those things would be the whole crossover dilemma. It's a dilemma. It's really a dilemma. It's really a challenge. So for the second part of this podcast, I want to talk equivalencies. I mean, I've, I've discussed it a little bit in terms of converting, yes or no, um, equivalency and potencies of these benzos. So gosh, I have so many opinions. I guess all y'all do, but um, I am struggling personally with very potent benzodiazepines because they're so, I think because there's an illusion that I, I mean, I'm experiencing this firsthand on the boards. People are saying I'm only taking half a milligram of Xanax, so it's a low dose. I am only one milligram of clonazepam, so it's a low dose. 
I was thinking on four milligrams of lormetazepam, I'm on a low dose. But it's just not true. These are not low dosages. Because these drugs are just extremely potent. You know, all of, from all the benzos, there are a couple that are extremely potent. Now, I'm trying to think, why on earth do we need such potent benzos, right? Um, and, you know, the short-acting ones that can cause interdose withdrawal. I mean, just overall, I'm questioning benzos and what they could be good for, right? Now, I, I do think that they can be helpful in certain cases. Um, and maybe people will agree, maybe will people will disagree, which is totally fine. So um, let's take Xanax. So I'm thinking, I do not have experience with anxiety, um, but let's say you take a Xanax and let's say you do, do this maybe once a month, once a year, and maybe you're fine. Maybe you are fine. But what if you're not? What if you're not? What if you get really addicted? Coming off of then Xanax and you're thinking, I'm only on half a milligram a day or one milligram a day or two. Like two milligrams of Xanax would be equivalent to 40 milligrams of diazepam. I mean, it's just, that's a very, very high dose. And so I'm just struggling, I guess, mostly with um, the illusion that I had and other people still do have that they're on an unquote low dose, which they're not. So there is a solution that I'm thinking of, um, and I'm not sure if people will read it. Um, maybe put it on the black box, box warning. Maybe put it in the pamphlet with every benzo stating how potent they are and really mention this dose of Xanax or Clonopin equals or whatever other benzo you were using or are using equals this amount of Valium or Diazepam. Just create more awareness to a patient or whoever is using this, rather it be daily or you know, not not as regular, but you know th that needs to change. We need to have some some sort of awareness going on that these drugs can be extremely potent. Um, so yeah, I do struggle with that, but maybe other people do as well. I don't know. Now I'm trying to remember my kind of beginnings on benzos, the lormetazepam. It sounds like lorazepam, which is Ativan, but it's not the same. I'm guessing that they're very closely related. They're, I think they're at least the same in terms of potencies. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I might have read the pamphlet that, um, the insert pamphlet that comes with the box and, you know, it's a possibility that you need to come off at some point. Um, there's a possibility you can get very ill if you try to do so. It's a possibility you could die. But, um, when I got the message that lormetazepam was no longer available, I feel like also pharmacies should be aware of the equivalency. So when my GP wrongly prescribed me 15 milligrams instead of 120, which I, that was the equivalency around, um, I ended up taking 60, but pharmacies can also play their part in this scenario. They could be, oh, you were on four milligrams of lormetazepam and you're getting 15. That's too low. It should be somewhere between 60 and 120. Now, if that would have happened, I think it would have created some awareness for me. I think it would have, whoa, that's a lot. That's a really, really high dose. And, you know, just creating more awareness. We can do that. Patients can do it themselves. But really, physicians and pharmacies can and should play a part in this.
I feel like if I'm discussing potencies and equivalencies and perhaps a crossover, I may forget that even though you're taking a benzo, they can have different effects. And that could be many things. I've experienced this myself, right? So I know if you check the Ashton manual, you will see that maybe one benzo is more focused on the muscle relaxed part. So, you know, when I said sometimes benzos can be okay, I'm thinking if you're a regular person, unquote, and you're having some sort of seizure, a grand mal seizure, it can be a great tool to get you out of that. But in this scenario, which I'm thinking about, these benzos should be at hospitals, not at GPs or physicians. Um, but then there's another class which works more hypnotic, so for sleeping issues. And then there's another one that works on anxiety, but maybe some of these benzos do all three in some way or being more strongly uh, hypnotic over an anxiety thing. Now, I remember that I asked my GP, my question was simple. I wasn't sleeping. I needed something for insomnia. Now, now I know every, because I got prescribed multiple benzos, but the first ones weren't very effective for me at all and gave nasty side effects, like wetting my bed and everything. Now, some of the benzos that he prescribed to me weren't specifically for, you know, hypnotics. So, wrong. <laughs> wrong. Um, the lormetazepam is a hypnotic-like Ativan, lorazepam. But at least I can say for the lormetazepam, it wasn't really effective for sleep. Yeah, it knocked me out for two hours. I had some sort of feeling of sleep, but then I would wake up every two hours. So it was a horrible experience. It was bad. I was like, ugh, I'm having a lot of broken sleep. Now, the ferazepam, almost similar in the sense that it did help me way more in the beginning. But I did wake up after three hours and then after another three hours. So for me, these you know, the hypnotic effects, in hindsight, they were just very temporarily working for me. And I had been on a high dose before, which I was not aware of. I was taking four milligrams of lormetazepam, and I was thinking it was a low dose. So it's just, you know, mind-blowing how these processes can go. Now, if you were on a benzo, if you are on a benzo, and you're taking one for sleep, and you feel like it's helping, I just want to warn you that that's not going to stay for long. That's going to, you know, wear off at some time. So um, if, you know, there's so many times, if I had a magical wand, I could go back in time, depending on what time I would go back to, in this period of time of a few months that I felt like I was sleeping better because of benzos, that would have been the moment for me that I would, you know, try to come off them. Like now I'm sleeping and I'll get a rougher time. The sooner I quit they, these things, the better. So again, when I said earlier in the podcast that sometimes they can be helpful, I think so. I think um, if you, for, for whatever reason, and you haven't slept in a few weeks or a week or two months, whatever, and you're like, I'm trying to escape this prison of insomnia and it's not working, for one or two days, for like one time, it can help. It can maybe break a cycle that you're in. But at the same time, other stuff needs to happen because people need to be aware that this is like the the hammer. This is like the last resort kind of thing. And it, well, that's how I feel about it. Now, I want to take the opportunity in this episode and not make an entire separate episode about short term because I know that there's a discussion about this, rightfully so. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion and what I think I know. So, 
I've said this already, but in the Netherlands where I live and I'm Dutch, we don't have the black box warning that states that we could get addicted in a matter of days, right? So potentially someone, this is all potentially, but still a chance because you might just be one of these people and you don't want to be one of these people that gets trouble coming off of them after taking them for a few days. Let's say five for the sake of argument, five days. You could get addicted in within five days. I mean, so short term, in my opinion, is five days. <laughs> that would be kind of four or five days. Um, now, the pamphlets do tell me that um, I think their term, in terms of short term, maybe two months. Um, maybe they're saying it could be a bit longer. Um, so it's very hard. You know, there's a lot of discussion, which is okay. We have consensus within the benzo community, maybe even... Uh, within the medical community, short term. So we could say it's two months is short term. Um, but that's going to be hard because you're always playing Russian roulette with benzos, in my opinion, because not everybody gets sick. Not everybody struggles coming off of benzos. But then we have us and we get severely sick. We may die. We go through the deepest torture that someone can imagine. And do you want to take that risk? Is it really worth the risk for using something longer term? And I mean, some of these drugs, I, I understand why they could be addictive because it relieves your problem maybe instantly. They work so fast. So with my fluorazepam, when I was sleeping well on them, I was like, wow, this is a miracle. I had already a complex relationship with sleep, no issues with sleep, but I did have some complex relationship going on with my sleep. It was very important to me. So I thought this is magic. You know, I never have to stress about sleep. So it was just look very easy. And this is, I'm going to tell you something. It's very personal to me, but um, maybe everyone thinks the same. I thought they were safe. Granted, they, they told me it was addictive, but if they were dangerous, I don't think, you know, they would have been able to prescribe these drugs. I'm like, it's a medication. In, in the Netherlands, by the way, there's a distinct um, difference between a medication and drugs. When we say drugs, we mean hard stuff like cocaine, heroin stuff. When we say medications, which benzos are in the Dutch language, I'm thinking they may be good for something. However, with everything that I've discovered, including dying and suffering so much because of benzos, I don't think GPs, physicians should be the ones prescribing these drugs. And I'm, it's, this is a very personal thing. So I got a benzo for insomnia. So I don't know what it's like to have anxiety and taking a benzo for that or any other reason. But with the wisdom I have now, if I would be a GP... And I get a patient who's totally desperate and exhausted because he hasn't slept or she hasn't slept for like two months and she's like almost getting a psychotic break. I would say, look, I'd love to have, help you out, but you need to go and see someone else, maybe a psychiatrist or you need to do something extra. So like go to a hospital or go to like a first aid thingy, an ER, because, you know, it should be very temporary when you get these drugs. So I think there would be more a protocol would be needed where you don't get benzos for insomnia at your GP, but at somewhere else, like be at a hospital, like oh, I'm dying. I haven't slept in two weeks or months and I'm just, you know, I'm losing my shit. 
And they could give you a benzo for two days, but then be like, well, sir, ma'am, that's it. This will give you relief for one or two days, maybe four. But, you know, you got to change your life. You, you, you got to do something else. And if there is a, like an underlying problem that won't go away or is unable to go away, like maybe pain or in my case, tinnitus, find alternatives. You know, we will give you something for one or two days or four days to help you sleep and get your shit together. But then you have to think about alternatives. It's very just very emphasizing on the short term. Now, granted, I was not an easy patient for my GP because I was like, I need this because I'm not sleeping. But still, my GP should have acted differently, in my opinion. He should have said, well, this is for, you know, a couple of days and then I want you to come back to me because I'm not going to give you more. If you want more, you're going to have to go and see someone else. I do not want to be responsible for you to get hooked on benzos and die coming off of them. And because in the Dutch language, there's a distinct difference between drugs and medications i'm thinking medications would be things that cure a certain condition benzos do not cure any fucking thing they will not cure you of your depression they will not cure your anxiety they will not cure your insomnia they won't they will only make it worse if you take it for a longer period of time and i think this needs to be known within people and doctors themselves don't know this shit so it's awful if you're not sleeping. I know everything about insomnia. I've had the worst insomnia ever. I, I mean, I think that. I mean, my, my insomnia has been so extremely bad. But Benzo's just made it worse in the long term. So, yeah, it's it's bad. It's, I wish there were drugs that would cure the conditions that I mentioned earlier. But they just don't. They just postpone the inevitable and make it worse. So, not a fan of Benzo's no more, you can imagine. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash neftalbenesty. Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Neftal Benesty, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 5, Fuck-Ups and How to Prevent Them. Today, it's October 28th, 2022. Thank you again for tuning in. Um, The previous episodes were kind of emotional. I hope from now on that um, I will be less emotional. It may still happen. Um, But before I actually start this episode, I want to take you a bit with me on my journey in terms of making the podcast. I'm very aware of the fact that I could have gotten into this kind of more professionally, more prepared. I started writing my book in February 2022 because I was like, oh gosh, this is so horrible and people need to be informed. And if I can just save one person or help one person kind of avoid the intense, immense suffering that I went through, my mission would be accomplished. But then I was thinking throughout the months that I was like, you know, I don't even know if this book is going to get finished. I'm not even sure if it's going to get published. And if it does, it might be years from now. And I just think of me in back in February 2022, 
looking for information and especially looking for Dutch information, which I didn't find. There's just there's not really Dutch information. There is Dutch information about how to taper off rapidly at a hospital, but I was like, no, that's dangerous. That doesn't really work for me. So, and but I really missed Dutch stories. I mean, I've had a few podcasts that I listened to that were were just very interesting, and of course, the Astro Manual meant the world to me. But I was like, where are my Dutchies? Where are my fellow country men and women who may have experienced something like this? I'm, am I the only one? I think I thought that for a long time, maybe until, yeah, February when I discovered the Benzo book and the Astro Manual. So as I'm making these podcasts, I'm realizing it's a craft. It's a fucking craft. You know, you have to be sure to be pronouncing yourself correctly, which is, of course, a challenge for me, especially in English, which is not my native language. It's not like I speak English on a day-to-day basis, except for maybe lately making these podcasts. So, and I'm not getting paid. I'm not being sponsored. There's like no, no money, nothing for me, which is fine. I wouldn't want a single cent because if you got as sick as I did, you may have lost everything or a lot, you know, just the financial damage because we're not able to work in some cases or maybe even most cases. And I've read even sadder stories of people losing, you know, their homes. And I lost my marriage. I wouldn't say it's all because of benzos, but it was definitely a factor because I was tired all the time and I had my tinnitus and I just felt sick and depressed or I don't know, just... I was like, you know, maybe he would be better off with someone that is just sleeping normally and not dependent on drugs and having noise all the time. I got inspired by Geraldine Burns with her podcast, Benzodiazepine Awareness, which I learned so much from. And in a way, you know, I may make a hundred episodes, maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. But I feel like the all the information that I needed, it's out there. I just had to know where to look. And with a single episode of a podcast from someone else, I got a ha- aha moment, something that really helped me in terms of withdrawal, in terms of symptoms, in terms of approaching my withdrawal. And but, you know, again, I did have to kind of look everywhere, nowhere to find it. Like the Ashton Manual is great. It's awesome. But there's definitely things that I wouldn't have known just by reading that. And very important to me was the more stories I heard, the better, because it kind of gave me the feeling that I was not alone, that I wasn't crazy, that it was these motherfucking pills and drugs fucking me up. So um, it was kind of nice, of course, sad at the same time, because you don't want anyone to suffer that badly. But I felt like that was part of my family now, you know, I I can relate. And I really, I am convinced that you cannot, you can only describe Benzo Hell. Only we know how that was like. We wanted to die. It was horrible. The, The symptoms were endless. It's just hell. But only us, only people that've gone through Benzo Hell can actually know what it was like. No one else will ever know. Which maybe is a good thing, because I wouldn't wish it on anyone, and I'm thinking neither of you would want to wish that on anyone. It was so horrible and awful, and 
gosh, like there is a scar on my soul that will never heal from almost dying and suffering so much as I did. I mean, my life has unequivocally has changed because of this whole fucking experience. Gosh, I never knew that like something so horrible would even exist. Like, even if I would watch a movie, let's say Saw, a horror movie, I would rather have my leg cut off maybe in my crazy times over that, over the experience of Benzo Hell. Like, it's, it's just un... It's just indescribable, really, and unbelievable that that kind of suffering exists on this planet. It's just horrible. And one of the things that I want to do with the podcast is, hopefully, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do it or succeed at one of my goals, is all the information that I've gathered, kind of, you know, compress them. So not having to need maybe 100 episodes to say everything that I think that you should know, but hopefully... Ah, uh, I can give you some aha moments. And maybe it's good that this episode is called Fuck Ups because I'll be fucking up sometimes, you know, with my recordings and I can cut that a bit and, you know, maybe I should be better prepared next time, make some sort of schedule in terms of how I want to do the podcast, but I haven't done so yet. I'm just being very spontaneous, mostly. I think of a subject or a theme and I'll discuss it, and i just go with the flow. As I make more uh, podcasts, I'll become more experienced. At least for the English one, what I've kind of been faithful to so far is um, the length of the podcast. So they're between 40 and 50 minutes, whereas for the Dutch ones, up till now at least, um, I'm just, you know, doing whatever. Sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's 15, 20, just different. And I'm thinking if I don't have 40 minutes to spend on one single topic, I'll just do a second one and maybe even make a part one and part two. So I would say, well, at least up till now, most of my taper was a fuck up. I've had so many fuck ups and, but I had to learn. And most of the times I just didn't know what I was doing. So I would say the first fuck up that I did was a cold turkey. But I didn't know I was going to die if I did that. At least I did fix it in a way. I did save myself from death by taking some sort of benzo, be it a way too low dose. But whatever, I did survive. And I'm I'm okay now. So all these fuck-ups, they were bad or annoying or sometimes had grave consequences. But here I am. And I'm doing well. And I didn't think I'd be so well a year ago. So I've learned my lessons from my fuck-ups. However, I do want to share them with you so that maybe you don't fuck up as much as I did. But, you know, we're still human and we fuck up with shit. So shit happens. We fuck up. Um, but unfortunately, with benzodiazepines, they can have just really, really long, bad, suffering consequences. So when I started some sort of a taper, which, you know, 7 milligrams and... I would say the first fuck-up, and I it took me a long time to realize that this was a fuck-up, was me cutting pills. Now, this is going to be a bit tricky because I started on a low dose. I think 7 milligrams of diazepam is considered a low dose. Especially when you think that I should have started with 30 to 45 milligrams of diazepam. I can't believe that I'm alive, but I here I am, living and breathing, 
So cutting pills. So possibly because I cannot, you know, share this. I have no experience, but maybe when you're in kind of the higher regions of benzos or diazepam, let's say 40 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 20, then it might be okay to split a pill in half, maybe even in a quarter. But I remember that I was cutting these pills in one eighth of a pill. And I remember my kind of theory behind it. I was like, okay, diazepam has a long half-life. So if I just make sure that whatever I cut, if I just spread it in, in the upcoming days, it'll be okay. And maybe that worked. But later on in my taper, I really discovered, this was on three and a half milligrams, that I wasn't feeling well. I was getting symptoms. And I, it kind of made sense at one point where I was like, oh, it's because these, the, even the smallest reductions now at that point in time were causing symptoms and just discomfort and agony. I shouldn't have done that. I mean, I realize this now way too late. So I would say at a certain point, be it 10 milligrams, nine, eight, whatever, um, these pills are just not good you know, splitting them or making quarters, definitely one eighth. It's, it's, it's impossible to get it right. So either you switch to liquid if you continue on with your taper, which, you know, I'm struggling with this because I have other opinions and experiences about what happened after. So I have, I'm going to have to get back to that. But if you are proceeding your uh, taper, maybe it would be a good thing to start using liquid or you can use a jeweler scale and actually weigh the pills um but especially maybe i would say five or six milligrams maybe then cross over to you know liquid or at least i so in, in short you have to be sure that you're getting the exact amount of diazepam or whatever benzo you're using your original benzo at a certain point fluctuations will cause trauma, suffering. But this is my opinion because, you know, someone else might not be struggling so much, but this is what happened to me. I got just got sick from just the smallest variations in terms of pills. Now, a few things that I did to try to prevent fuck-ups. So I would make sure that I would have enough benzos in the house. So I maybe would put in my calendar, like, oh, I'm going to run, run out in two weeks or a week. So I need to make a phone call to get a new prescription because you don't want to be without benzos. And you don't want to find out on the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday and not being able to reach your prescriber. So I, I got that pretty good. I did that well, I think. I kept my benzos downstairs so I wouldn't be able to have them in the bedroom and maybe make a mistake by taking them at night or if I wasn't sleeping or whatever reason. I, I, I didn't want to take more. So that was one of my things, like keep that, keep the benzos downstairs, not in the same room. That's something I did well. So here goes one fuck up. And most of my fuck ups were related when I was doing cuts or when I was doing something else. So at some point I start to try a liquid taper and when I was doing the a liquid taper, there were all these reasons that it didn't work out for me. I'll get back to that. Um, I was doing a combination of pills and liquid to try to save money. Now that fails. 
long story, but I go back to pills and I make a mistake in filling the pill boxes for the week. And so this is a major fuck up, but luckily not with great consequences. So I find out. So, okay, go to bed. I thought I took out my benzos. I wake up the next day and I feel really odd. I slept super shitty, but I feel kind of sick. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, what's wrong with me? Um, as far as I know, I just took my benzos um, the way that I should have taken them. Now, I get progressively ill, like very soon, like in the morning, in the afternoon. By the afternoon, I am laying on my bed having seizures. I'm in benzo hell. My, I, my stomach is so upset. I barely ate anything that day. And I'm like thinking in benzo hell, but this time it was a different kind of benzo hell. It was the last time that I had benzo hell. I felt absolutely horrible. I was super sick. And I was thinking like, what went wrong? I, I don't understand why I'm, I'm getting so sick. So in that scenario, I was, I had updosed from 3.4 to 3.5. So I'm like, this is weird. I know that I knew by then that updosing would also maybe cause some issues, but not benzo hell. It's like, I didn't expect having, having so many symptoms now. Somewhere during the day, when I'm in benzo hell, I kind of check my pill boxes and I discovered that there's a quarter somewhere that shouldn't be at that day. But I don't make the link then. Like, oh, I should have taken that yesterday. That's why I'm sick now. I realize that, I'm, that I probably took a quarter to less, which is a half a milligram in the evening. I was like, okay, so I probably fucked up. And I, I, I probably did fuck up. So this is the shitty thing, right? So I cannot recheck what I took yesterday because it's inside my body. Um, looking back on that, um, I mean, I did recover from that incident. That was an incident. Um, but looking back, so if you think that you may have forgotten a dose or you have suspicions and you do get really sick and get a ton of symptoms and seizures, you probably took too less. You probably missed a dose. And I've seen this question come by on Benzo Buddies before, like, oh, maybe I've skipped a dose. I'm not really sure. I'm confused. It happens. You know, it's difficult. It sounds easy just to take the same dose every evening, but it still can be hard because we're sick and maybe we're, you know, confused and maybe we're cutting pills or weighing pills or all these difficult things. So, and we're just human. So we fuck up and we make mistakes. So it does happen. So, but I will say to you what I'm saying on Benzo Buddies when this question comes up, I would say if you, if you're not sure, if you miss a dose, but maybe don't do anything unless you get really sick, then you can probably presume you missed a dose and then you can still take the dose. So for that day, I personally decided not to do it. But in hindsight, if I would have realized that in the morning when I got sicker and sicker that day, I would have taken that um, half a milligram anyways. Now, this is a story on its own, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share. It's actually a bad story. I was really, it was a major setback for me. Okay, where do I start? So I have my benzos downstairs, but my beta blockers, I'm having those on my nightstand at the time. Uh, and I was taking the beta blockers only when I was really suffering from the heart palpitations, which would 
prevent me from from sleeping or I would wake up in the middle of the night pounding heart just terrible so I had the beta blockers on my nat stand so this particular night I had what well, was kind of like a combination of fuck up so I from that time around that time I am using melatonin for sleep like not a high amount like maybe 0.3 milligrams or 0.5 it doesn't matter but that particular evening I'm like I don't really want to be on anything for sleep because it's kind of like me struggling with having to need stuff for sleep. I I mean, I went into this whole process not wanting to need anything for sleep. And here I am on more different kinds of pills and things than I was just on benzos a year ago because it's just awful. But so I am thinking maybe the melatonin because I was still not sleeping very well or at the time. So I was unsure if melatonin was really working. I'll get back to you about sleeping and what I think works and what doesn't work, or perhaps I'm not really sure. I wish I had all the answers in terms of sleep, but I'll get to that some other podcast episode. So I'm like, I want to test if maybe I can just sleep without the melatonin. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't falling asleep. And at the same time, so it's kind of like an un, you know, how do you say this? Like uh, unfortunate gathering of events like that there's like a book that's called that way I think but okay I digress so I'm not falling asleep at all which at the time wasn't really an issue I would fall asleep eventually or quite soon and always just quite zen about it and even if I don't sleep you know bummer but this time I was really not falling asleep um and at the same time I was out of beta blockers on the nightstand so the rest of the beta blockers were at my benzos, at those packages downstairs. So I'm not able to sleep. I'm going downstairs to take my melatonin anyways because I'm like, I'm not sleeping. I need to sleep. So I'm like, okay, so mission failed, experiment failed. Probably I need melatonin for sleep now. So, okay, which is fine. I'm not really bothered with melatonin that much because it's a natural thing our bodies produce it anyway. So I wasn't really struggling with that thing, but you know, rather not need anything. So I go downstairs and I'm like, okay, I'm going to take my melatonin and I'm out of beta blockers, or at least they're not upstairs anymore. So I need to get a new box. I think I get the new box and I go to bed, but my heart palpitations are pretty bad that night. So in really bad nights or yeah you because usually I would just take them in the evenings or at night because it was mostly a problem when it came to sleep and that particular night I I think I took like two or three beta blockers so usually it's like one maybe sometimes two but if it's really bad then you know three at most but no more even if it wouldn't go away I would not take more than three and my heart palpitations don't seem to go away. I'm having a really rough night. I'm waking up with a pounding heart. So I take a beta blocker. At, at least I thought I was taking a beta blocker. And I wake up in the morning like severely crashed and tired and exhausted. And I remember kind of like this the sunlight coming into the bedroom on the nightstand. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Instead of the beta blockers, I took diazepam. So here I am on 3.5 milligrams of diazepam or 3.4. I think it was 3.4. I was still trying to use liquid as well. 
and I, I ended up taking two tablets of diazepam. So four milligrams of diazepam. Were, so that's more than the dose that I was trying to taper. I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I was so angry. I was so upset about it. It was like, oh, this is such a fuck up. Oh my gosh, what do I do? Do I need to change my whole taper plan now? Oh my God. I was like, I was losing my shit because of this. I was like, oh my God. Because... I want nothing more to be rid of benzos, and here I am. I, I OD'd, basically. I overdosed. I mean, I didn't die, or, but it was twice the dose that I was planning on taking even more. I was like, oh, gosh, what do I do? And this is one of the few times where I actually go on Benzo Buddies and be like, help, this is what I did, and oh, gosh, what do I do? And I was very stressed about it. And it took me about, because, you know, I didn't get a response instantly, which is fine. I don't expect people to be there, uh, you know. And they do kind of provide me with the answer that I kind of thought of myself. Because a part of me was like, maybe I need to taper now from the high dose that I took. But I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. So it was just one time. So I'm going to weather the storm, whatever may come. And that's basically what I got from feedback saying, okay, it, it happens, shit happens. And it does happen. People do make mistakes also in this way where they accidentally take too much. Now, if it's only for one day, that's not, you know, the end of the world. But, but though, so they, I think maybe I asked like, what can I expect? And I think one of the answers was, you may notice nothing or you may notice something. Well, I'm going to tell you, I noticed something, right? I was sick for two fucking weeks from this too high dose. Two whole fucking weeks. All these symptoms just came back so bad. Like restless leg syndrome, even more heart palpitations. It was just horrendous. I mean, it wasn't as bad as benzo hell that I've had before. But, oh, I remember the tinnitus. I mean, I already have tinnitus, and I'm so glad that, I have, that I've got cognitive behavioral therapy for it because my tinnitus was through the roof those two weeks. And I remember this one particular night because I'm kind of at peace. I know how to deal with my tinnitus, but there were like one or two nights. It was so fucking loud. It was so loud. It was bothering me so much, and it never really bothers me anymore, my tinnitus, even the extra ones that come with a taper. I'm pretty zen about it. It's annoying, but I remember two nights, it was like extremely loud and extremely debilitating. I was like, what the fuck? It's really annoying the shit out of me. It's really fucking loud. Um, so it was bad. It was really, really bad. And I'm, I'm laughing now, but um, I shouldn't be laughing. But it was kind of like, okay, shit happens. But, you know, this is one of the fuck-ups that really fucked me up for two fucking weeks. It was really bad. It was just bad, 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 bad. So I would recommend you the same. This is my advice. If you fuck up by taking a too high dose or an extra dose or something for one time or even two times or three times, whatever, um, yeah, it might really be rough, but I'm glad that I stick to my kind of plan. So it's 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 messed up, and what could I have done differently? It was just really bad luck because, you know, the, the beta blockers had ran out on my nightstand. Any other night, I would have had them there. It was just a series of unfortunate events. However, there's one thing that I may have done differently, 
And that is when you are reducing or switching, or if there's like some sort of change within your taper, a step, do not mess around with trying. If melatonin is working for you, do not go experiment if you can do without it. When you're just having these recent kind of shifts or things happening, don't do that. So that would be my mistake. Don't mess too much with other things while you're switching or reducing or updosing or anything like that. That could be a later thing when you're stable. Yeah, and this is a very interesting thing. And I feel like it's going to be hard discussing it because maybe it should be a separate episode. But I'm going to do it anyway. So stable. So what is stable anyways? So within the benzo community, I tend to agree. Stable would be that you're able to function. That you don't have akathisia. That you don't have moving disorders, that you don't have seizures, that you're able to shower, you're able to dress yourself, you're able to talk. So all these things would define stable in in my opinion. Now my major fuck up would be cutting, reducing in that state of not being stable. I would only consider doing reductions if I wasn't having any of those symptoms. But I was doing that anyway in the beginning. Like I was on the seven milligrams. I was deathly ill. I had all these symptoms, barely sleeping, and I was reducing anyways. So that was a definite fuck up. Also, mostly in the beginning beginning of my taper, so around seven milligrams, I would do these cuts all the time, be very sick. And then sometimes they, my symptoms would be so intolerable that I would go back up. Now, just going back up so easily... I didn't realize at the time that that also was causing distress. I mean, sometimes, again, we have to updose because we're just dying and it's just awful. But it's not doing us any good, all this switching, dicking around with the with the dosages. Um, my personal fuck up. But again, I didn't really know. So it's just very important to be on the same dose and only reduce if you're stable Now, this is a very personal fuck up. And, you know, this can be very circumstantial and depending on your personal situation. But I severely underestimated the taper slash I just didn't know it was going to take so long and that I was going to feel so awful. But especially in the beginning, I, even though I was really sick, I would plan things with friends, for example. Only to have to cancel them because I hadn't slept or I was just, you know, so deathly ill. So it's kind of more the philosophy that I take in right now is that I, all my friends and family members are aware of my situation. And if they're like acquaintances, then I don't necessarily have to tell them everything. I could just say I am sick because uh, because of medication and whatever. But um, the way that I go about this now, so kind of, you know, the advice I would give you is to say, look, I'd love to plan something with you, but I'm not really sure if I'm going to be able to make it. Now, that's, this is a personal thing. I hate canceling things. I hate it. I, I've never liked it. Um, but it just gives me a lot of ease and comfort if I have that kind of space that they're okay with me rescheduling, um, because at some point in your taper, you might actually start feeling well, 
or better, or there may be days when you are able to function and do things. Um, so that is something that I really enjoy about the way that I kind of deal with the, you know, being sick or not sleeping or the bad stuff from the withdrawal is to be very like, you know, I may come, I may not come, you know, but I'll let you know on the day. Um, so that would be a massive fuck up on my behalf in, in, in the beginning that I was like, okay, I remember being so like, gosh, so unaware, so naive. I was like deathly ill and thinking, but maybe next week I'll be better. <laughs> maybe next week I'll be better. Like at the start of my taper. So again, I didn't know anything. I didn't know I was going to be so sick for a very long time, but so that is something that I want to give you as advice. Maybe if you can achieve that, create awareness and that they're okay if you don't come to a party or don't come to a birthday. I think at some point I was like, I'm going to be sick for, you know, I don't know how long. So don't expect nothing. You know, I may be there. I may be not there. I hope so. But just I hope that you have some understanding. And luckily, most of my friends and family members do. So in terms of to prevent fuck-ups, um, because we can be so deathly ill and our brains may not be working as well and you may be forgetting everything, um, in that case, or just in any case, what really helps me is to set timers for everything, for everything. Um, so I'm setting timers for when I need to take my medications. I'm setting timers for if I need to do something that day, um, like a reminder um, timers to get a prescription and so, so on. So just really set alarms and times and stuff like that. Now, another thing to prevent fuck ups, if you have a partner or, you know, someone in the house, um, you can ask them for help in terms of getting your medication right. Um, because we can be so confused. I'm speaking for myself, but I was just very confused and, you know, it might seem simple just, you know, setting out the meds for the rest of the week, but sometimes we make mistakes and a couple of extra eyes could be helpful. So I would recommend this if you're not alone in, in the house and you have someone willing to help you, at least when you do the weekly kind of, you know, medications and you put them in the boxes or however that it is that you do it. Um, but I would definitely do something where you fill the boxes for a week or what you don't do it from straight out of the box on a daily thing. Make sure you've set them for the rest of the week. Um, so on that moment in time, one time a week or two times a week, get someone to check it for you. That was, that would be something that I highly recommend. I mean, my partner super sweet. He would even want to check with me every single evening, but because it be, can be a multi-year process. I was like, oh no, I just, just, you know, in just in the flow of life, that's like, I, not, not necessarily big ask, but because you just keep taking the pills on a set time, you know, it's, it, you can still do it. If you're like very uncertain or if you've made mistakes in the past, that's something that you can do. And you can just ask like, hey, could you check with me every evening? Or if you're like doing multiple doses just a day, um, then you can say, would you mind looking with me if I'm taking the correct dose? You can also just, you know, asking for help. I, I did do that occasionally. Um, but if you can, definitely, you can also say I'm so sick right now and I'm barely sleeping and I'm not able to think, would you help me out making sure that I have my prescriptions filled? Um, 
So that would be also kind of like an extra pair of eyes, another person that is maybe not suffering benzodiazepine withdrawal and is just sleeping normally and thinking properly and, you know, they can definitely help you out. Um, even if you are not um, living with someone, but you have someone close by, a family member, um, and you feel like you are overall okay doing it by yourself on your own, in your own house, um, you can ask someone to come over and go through things with you. Even other things like maybe finances or letters that come in, you know, something that needs action and you're super tired and, or very depressed or just overwhelmed by everything you, you're not able to deal. Um, yeah, if I'd known in advance that this was going to happen to me and if, if I was going to be so sick, I really missed kind of like a pre preparation like, oh, I may become super sick and I may not be able to do certain things anymore. It would have been a total different scenario. But I'm thinking a lot of people like me kind of get really sick very unexpectedly and kind of have to deal with everything then. But yeah, definitely ask people that you love. And if you're entirely alone and you feel overwhelmed and you're doubtful that you're going to make it, um, maybe there are you know, social workers, that's also very depending on where you live and what kind of access to care that you may have. Maybe you can actually hire someone to make sure the pills are going okay and everything, but, or maybe even your psychiatrist or your doctor. Um, but if you can, I would definitely ask for help if you feel like you need it. Something that I mentioned before, I think, is whenever you are changing a benzo or if you are cutting and especially in the beginning if you maybe don't know a lot and you don't know how you're going to respond i think it would be great this is something that i personally missed very much in my taper especially in the beginning was checkups like you just did a cut or you just changed a benzo how are you feeling um and it may not occur with doctors or psychiatrists to do that checkup with you because they maybe just presume that you'll be okay, but you may not be okay. So if you're willing and able, um, maybe you can ask that to your prescriber or your caregiver, like, okay, uh, I may be okay. I may not be okay, but I'm going to make a change in terms of my benzodiazepine or benzodiazepines. Um, let's check in with each other. Would you want to call me in a day or could I call you in a day or next week? Um, or, you know, have just have more checkups in the beginning. Definitely. If you are uncertain what's about to happen, um, just have support. I think that's important. I had a lot of support of my partner and of course the online community later on. Um, but it's just it's severely underestimated. I was like, how could you send me home with a benzo that's new? And I almost died and, you know, I, I never heard from them. You know, it may not be possible, but also just explore your possibilities. And you don't necessarily need to do this alone. And if you, you don't have to do it alone, then I wouldn't do it. Even if everything goes well, because some tapers go really well. Some people don't get sick. But you can say to someone like, okay, I'm a bit scared, I'm daunted, I am doing a reduction and, you know, I may not be okay. 
So would you mind that we call? And sometimes we're so depressed. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. I, I had so many dates. I didn't want to speak to anybody. I was so miserable and I didn't want to speak to anyone. I just wanted to suffer all by myself. Um, but then still, you know, a phone call would work oftentimes for me, but I could just even say, not today. I'll call you soon. Tomorrow I have like barely slept and I'm just not a happy person when I don't sleep. So, and benzo withdrawal. So think of possibilities and don't be scared to ask anyone for help because we can get so sick. Now, this is something that I do want to mention in this episode, and I'm probably sure that I'm going to revisit this, but um, fuck ups in terms of adjacent medication. And I specifically want to mention Seroquel, uh, which is ketapine. I mentioned it before. Um, I, I got it prescribed for insomnia. Um, there are other drugs that can possibly help. I'm saying this very carefully, um, because I do have opinions and I've had almost all of the drugs that are potentially helpful for sleep, but the Seroquel, that was just nasty. That was really nasty. Very, very nasty to me. And I remember that my psychiatrist at some point was asking me about it and I had just, you know, tapered it off and didn't sleep for two days. But apparently a lot of people think that it's not addictive, but it can be addictive because my psychiatrist did tell me that she was having patients that struggled very, very much coming off of Seroquel. Um, I know that with antidepressants, it can be the same thing that you, that it's addictive or difficult to come off of, but I just want to warn for Seroquel because I think that as I'm convinced it's a really nasty drug because um, when I was researching benzodiazepines and all the, all the other drugs that I was taking, I did read articles stating that Seroquel is being prescribed off label for insomnia. Um, but that, at least in my country, they're very concerned about the drug, um, that it may be very addictive and hard to come off of. And I actually heard a podcast about ketapine, and I think they had two or three guest speakers. And one of them was having severe withdrawal symptoms trying to come off of it. So I would not, I would strongly advise against Seroquel for well, any reason, actually, but definitely also during a benzodiazepine taper, no. So I just want to give a heads up. I want to warn specifically for Seroquel, ketapine. Now I'm wrapping up the episode and I really want to recommend Geraldine Burns' podcast, Benzodiazepine Awareness. I mean, I remember looking for podcasts and I did find a few concerning benzodiazepines, but Geraldine Burns is someone who survived her benzodiazepines. She's been benzo-free for quite some time. She has really good speakers on her show, and this is the podcast that not only inspired me, but gave me most of the information that I really needed. So that would be one specific podcast I really, really want to recommend. So um, don't be shy and check it out. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash neftalbenesty.
Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode six, The Oasis, and the indefinite hold. Today, it's October 29th, 2022. This episode, I'm way more prepared than the other ones. So yay, good for me. I'm learning and I'm, you know, yeah, getting better at it. I hope, I hope. So this episode, um, I'm going to tell you a lot about my story in- about how I got to an oasis, which I would like to call it. I am calling it that way, period. And how I decided on indefinitely holding my taper. So it's somewhere around April, May, 2022, and I'm around three and a half milligrams of diazepam. And I know it's shockingly low. It's really low considering I was like on 90 milligrams of lorazepam, which equals around between 30 and 45 milligrams of diazepam, maybe like, let's see, six months before. It's just crazy the way that I tapered. But, you know, again, I didn't know any better. However, by April, May, I know a lot more about benzodiazepines. Um, Thank the Astro Manual. I'm thanking the Benzo Book. I'm thanking Benzo Buddies. I am learning a lot. Now, I'm also feeling somewhat better. I wouldn't say great. I am still sleeping very poorly. I still have a lot of symptoms, but I'm not as sick as I was the months before. Now, I'm aware that it's going to take a lot longer or longer than I initially planned or thought of, thought of, but the insomnia is just killing me. I am barely sleeping and I don't think I'll live this insomnia. I don't think I'll survive. I, my insomnia was extremely debilitating. It had been for so long already, but you know, the reality of it was that I thought, like, I'm going to taper within a month or two and then maybe sleep a bit bad and then I'll sleep better again because I had the cognitive behavioral therapy. But I, you know, I at some point I just figured out that, you know, that was, wasn't going to save me and it was just going to take a lot longer. And I just couldn't bear the insomnia anymore. Even after the cognitive behavioral therapy, I was like, I need to fucking sleep because I'm losing my shit and I'm just not thinking and it was just unbearable. There's just so much insomnia that one can, you know, take, in my opinion. And I already have, I'm very sensitive to bad sleeping. So I remember reading the Ashton Manual, you know, somewhat with a compromised brain. And I kept rereading it. I'm reading it again. And I, I guess in a way I'm looking for lost treasures. Like, is there an answer to maybe help me with certain things? And at some point, so around April 2022, I find this, you know, paragraph or, you know, a few sentences where Ashton mentions if sleeping is a problem or really is a problem. Like, if sleeping is really a problem, it is the problem. It is my whole fucking problem. I'm not sleeping. You know, I was just losing my shit so bad because of insomnia. It was bad and frustrating. And I just, I, I just, it was just awful. I mean... All the other symptoms, depression, and everything is bad, but the insomnia, that was my, it was my predominant issue, and it was the reason that I got prescribed benzos, 
And now, ironically, they were fucking my my sleep up. So, and it was like, so I was so down. I was so depressed and everything felt like a battle. It felt like it was unfair because I was like, oh, I finally, I think I can cope with my tinnitus now and I'm not sleeping, you know? So I just felt so miserable. I felt miserable. And then I, you know, I read this part with within the Astro Manual saying that there are adjacent medications to help you sleep. I'm like, yes, yes, I need pills. No, like I need something to get me through this insomnia. Now, again, I'd rather not take any fucking pill. I'm done with pills, you know, but I have to. And, um, and at least in terms of benzos and, you know, living and not dying and all that stuff. But I'm like, and even if I was going to take an adjacent medication, I was like, that is going to be a temporary thing just to get me through the withdrawal or whatever. Because by now, I am convinced that there's no such thing as something to help you sleep for the long term. It should eventually restore itself. So I'd rather not have any pills, but the insomnia was just intolerable. It was really awful. It was really, really, really bad. I cannot, I cannot convey this to you. I was barely sleeping, you know, barely, barely sleeping. Um, and also these symptoms were causing some of my insomnia, like the heart palpitations, the restless leg syndrome, uh, just, it was just so awful. So, um, now that I know that there's adjacent medication that could help me possibly sleep, I make an appointment with my psychiatrist and... That was a very nice appointment because I remember this very well. I, I went to her and I'm, I was like, you know, I want nothing more than to come off these benzos. They are just fucking annoying. I hate these motherfucking pills. I really hate these pills right now. I wish I'd never started on what well, anyway, you know what it's like. You are just so upset because you're chained to medications now. Anyway, so I was like, okay, so I read the Astra Manual many times by now, and she's saying something about a medication that could maybe help me with sleep. Now, there, I think Ashton mentions two, as far as I remember. So the first one would be amitriptyline, and I was like, oh, no, no, I had that before. I'd rather not take that. Then the other one that she mentions is an antihistamine. And my psychiatrist was really friendly and really nice. And she was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. She, so she made a very concrete plan with me. That was really nice. So she was like, the first thing that you're going to do is not taper. You're going to hold. And I struggled with that because I was still in the zone of like, I want to cut and I don't want to go on. And because I want to be free of these motherfucking drugs, I want to come off. But I agreed to that. So I was like, okay, now my goal is to get some fucking sleep. So fine, I will not taper for for now, you know, for now. And um, I think she either at the spot or maybe later on, she was like, okay, so this uh, medication that Ashton mentions, it's not available in the Netherlands in that dosage. So it's a possibility, but then you would have to get the made custom, which is very expensive in the Netherlands. I can tell you that. But she was like, you know, I have other patients that are poorly sleeping for whatever reason. So there are a few medications that we can try. It's like, okay, so we kind of make, made a list. So the first thing was an antihistamine called promethazine. And she was like, okay, so first you're going to try that, 25 milligrams. If that does not work, you're going to take 50. If those don't work, then we go to basically it was kind of like from less bad to more bad kind of medications. 
the second one wa- was mirtazapine, which is called Remeron. And that if that didn't work, then I was able to try Trazodone. And then if that all of that didn't work, then the option of the one that Ashton mentions in her manual, I could have tried that. So I go home with this plan and I just feel relieved some way. I, I just feel like this is a concrete plan because, you know, there's so many vari- varieties and variables and shit that happens during a taper. I was like, okay, but this is something I can hold on to. And I was craving that so much during my entire taper. Just t- please someone tell me what to do because I don't know what to do. And I'm, I've read everything, but you know, I, I should have started my taper so differently. And I, I just felt lost most of the time. So I, 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 I take this plan home and I instate this plan. I am not reducing my, my benzos, my diazepam. And the first thing that I do is I try the, the antihistamine, the promethazine, 25 milligrams. It doesn't really do anything as far as I remember. I take 50 and I remember that the results were kind of inconclusive at the time. So I tried it for about a week and I was like, well, there's still, still two other meds on, on the list that I can try. And I'd rather not because the, the mirtazapine was um, or is an um, antipsychotic or antidepressant, an antidepressant. So I was like, mm, I don't know about this. So I, I tried for about a week or so, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit longer. And I remembered this. So it wasn't really specifically helping me sleep, but I, this is kind of insidious how some drugs work. So it, it doesn't work for me. Wouldn't say that it may not work for you. Every, you know, everybody responds differently to drugs. But I remember after about yeah, that week and a half or so that I was trying the mirtazapine, I was like, I don't want to do anything. I'm not sleeping great, but I felt like I just, I just didn't want to do anything. Very indifferent, very, I had no energy, no motivation to do nothing. And it took me a while to realize that. So I was like, oh, this, this mirtazapine, it's making me shallow and, and, and no, no, kind of lethargic. Wow, that's a fancy word for me, <laughs> not being a native. Um, lethargic. I was like, okay, so this is not working. So I remember that I made the decision that I, that, that wasn't going to help me out. So in in my kind of opinion, I had two options left. So I was like, okay, the promethazine seems the less harmful ones of all of these. I can always go back to that one. And I had trazodone on the list. So... I was like, okay, I'm going to try the trazodone. If that does not work, then I'll just stick with the promethazine, the antihistamine. And it just felt more safe to me in some way. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get back to you if, if it may be super dangerous or not. I don't know. But I mean, rather not any drugs. But um, at least Ashton says an antihistamine could help. So, you know, safe words, safe words. Um, so I tried the trazodone. My gosh, it was horrible. It was awful, the trazodone. I remember taking the trazodone and it felt like I got poisoned. Like I felt groggy. I was like, okay, so like once that hit me, the kind of grogginess, I was like, okay, this is the last freaking time 
This is the first and last time I'm going to take Trazodone. This is just awful stuff. Poison. I felt poisoned, kind of high in a bad way again. I was like, oh, this reminds me of the 15 milligrams of diazepam. It's not the same, but I was like, ugh, blech, I just want to throw up and I can't walk. And I, w- I was actually having a lot of trouble walking. I was like, okay, I have to get to bed safe, safely because um, this might go wrong. I was like, okay, this is not going to work for me. So the trazodone, no, I remember I felt it was so awful. I just tossed it right away. I was like, oh, I'm never taking this shit again. This is just awful, you know? So no. So I, I instate the promethazine again. At the same time, I'm, I'm using um, a low dose of melatonin. I can't remember exactly when I started taking that, but I remember like, okay, I'm just so, so exhausted. I'm not sleeping. So if there's anything, anything at all that can help me, I was so desperate again, but very cautious as well, because I don't want to take a shit ton of drugs anymore because, you know, that's how I got in this place the first time. So I don't want to do that unless I think it's safe and not addictive. Um... So at least I was on Seroquel, you know, those motherfuckers gave me that first, which is just also very bad. But, you know, perhaps maybe some people like Seroquel, ketapine, but not for me. No, 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 thank you, ma'am. Bye. Um, so I'm happy that I'm not on that. Um, so basically, I am taking melatonin, I think about 0.5 milligrams, and I'm on 50 milligrams of promethazine. Uh, the only thing that uh, promethazine kind of concerns me is one of the side effects could be heart palpitations. And I was like, okay, well, I'm I'm getting beta blockers for that. Um, so I'm not really happy with that. But as, as far as I know, it should not be addictive. And again, I can't stress this enough. I'd rather not take any adjacent medications because I hate medications by now. But at least as, as far as the melatonin goes... Um, I felt, I still feel, but maybe people have other opinions that, you know, melatonin is something that your your body makes on its own. So I was like, okay, that is not toxic chemical as far as I know. So it's June 2022. So this is quite recent, actually, for me. Um, I've been holding for 30 days, three and a half milligrams of diazepam, and I'm on the 50 milligrams of promethazine. I'm on the melatonin. And after 30 days, I just feel great. I feel glorious. I feel wonderful. And I'm sleeping well. And when I say sleeping well, it's like maybe waking up once or twice. But not the 10 times that I would have and just barely sleep. But this was like, I was in shock. Honestly, it's June. And I've read so many stories by then where people stated that their withdrawal was a hell and torture from beginning to end. That it was a nightmare. There was like no relief at all. And I'm I'm like, I'm I'm feeling really well. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I was like in shock. I feel great. I feel really good. And I was like, you know, I felt so great. It was just, oh my god. So I that I call my oasis because I never expected, I mean, very much welcome, but I just did not expect to feel better during this taper, during this. And you know, bear in mind, I was suffering for so many months, and now all of a sudden I feel great. Was it a good spell? Perhaps we'll never know. I just call it my oasis. And all I was, I was like, how is this happening? How is this happening? Is it the promethazine? Is it the melatonin? Is it me not, you know, cutting my dose? It could be any of these things. Although I do have to say, I think it's probably because I was holding my dose. Um, I was like, this is just awesome. And I, I felt so good. And I just, 
found myself again, the happy Naftal, the happy guy. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I haven't been able to do anything the past months. I was just barely doing things. And now I want to clean windows and I want to work out. And I was just so exhilarated. I was happy. I was energetic. I was like, what am I even doing home? Because in this state, I can just get to work and do stuff. I felt so great. And I just, it was just, just, ah, oh, this was like amazing. I felt amazing. Now this happens for eight days. There's one day I remember. So my oasis was eight days. However, one day I didn't sleep so well, but you know, it's just one day when you're always sleeping shitty, you know, always sleeping shitty. And then all of a sudden you're sleeping well. One day of bad sleep ain't that bad, but it's different than months or weeks or just barely sleeping. And I'm totally shocked, but it means the world to me. First of all, I feel really good. And that was so well, it was like a vacation. That's why I call it the oasis. I kind of like imagining myself in this oasis, but within a desert and I'm on my not alcoholic, not alcoholic uh, beverage, a margarita, whatever. I'm in a hangmat and I'm just enjoying. It was like, oh, such a relief, an indescribable relief after months of suffering. I was like, oh, I feel so great. Now, like I said, this happened eight days because at the same time, I was like, oh, but I've been holding for 30 days. I really need to, you know, uh, go forward with this taper because, um, well, why? First of all, I wanted to come off really badly. I still do. But secondly, I heard of these stories about kindling and um, which I, by the way, don't always agree with. I think it could happen, but, you know, maybe another podcast. I'm, I'm sticking with my story right now. But I was like, oh, I have to go on because I might get symptoms. This was kind of my fear. My fear was mostly getting symptoms while I wasn't tapering. So it's like, you know, I, I have to continue on. Now, a lot of stuff is happening all at the same time. This is kind of my roller coaster, and I'm sorry if I'm being all over the place, but everything happens at once. So I'm having a good week. Um... I realized, I, I read a story on Benzo uh, Buddy, someone who was micro-tapering, turtle tapering, so basically going very slow, very slow with the taper. I'm like, I want to do that. I think that a turtle taper is just my thing. So um, I'm on the three and a half milligrams of diazepam, and I start to get informed in terms of in my country, in the Netherlands, what my options are if I want to do a turtle taper or a micro-taper. Those options are kind of disappointing because um, there's one pharmacy and apparently they're kind of famous internationally that we have one pharmacy in the Netherlands that makes compound pills, which is called, well, translation would be Rainbow Pharmacy. In Dutch, it's Regenboog Apotheek. Um, I, I try to contact them. It's kind of hard. We go back and forth. But my question is because I don't want to get these strips where every day they decide for me or I say I come with some sort of plan like this week I want to do 3.4 point something for 3.48, for example. Um, and I didn't want that. I just wanted to have access to compound pills so I get to decide whenever I want to do a step lower or whatever. Now, that is a possibility. However, the smallest pills that they make is 0.1 milligrams of diazepam. I'm like, okay, but with the insurance that I have in, in this year now, they don't reimburse it. So they, they, they don't reimburse it. So I would have to pay for that myself. I am not keen on that at all. First of all, I don't want to spend a lot of money. I, I'm willing to spend money, but if my taper is going to take years or 
I'm not sure how long it's going to take. Maybe I will lose all my savings. I will have zero money left. Or maybe I was not able to afford it at all. I was like, okay, that's too much hassle. So what are are my other options? Also, again, I would rather have, so this is my wish in June. I want pills that are 0.01 milligrams of diazepam. That's what I want, but that's just unavailable. The other options is get a, a liquid. I'd have to pay for that myself. So I'm kind of, uh, I don't know. And I am not, I, I'd rather not do liquid at that point because it's kind of like a stressor within the taper and switching to it. It's daunting. I I, I still think it's daunting. Um, so I was, I was very insecure about that. Um, so I decide after these eight days, I'm like, okay, well, fuck all of that. I have these pills in the house. I don't want to start a chem lab at home. And, and you know, um, a lot of people do this, by the way, all respect to them. I might eventually get there um, is where they do their own liquid taper and titration. So I decide that I am just going to move forward with the diazepam tablets. Wrong, wrong, wrong decision. But, you know, I had to learn a really, really tough, tough lesson. Anyway, so I'm like, okay, you know what I'll do? Because as small as that I can cut them, it's not even, but I didn't have problems with that before. I'm just going to cut them in one eighth of a pill. So I go from 3.5 to 3.25. And man, I'm going to tell you, it was really rough. Immediately, I started sleeping poorly. But I remember especially the depression came back very much so, like very intense depression, like, ugh, I just felt really, really depressed. Now, the way, maybe I'll just do another episode on this, but the way that I dealt with the depression caused by menzo withdrawal, I was like, I am super depressed. I can't escape the depression, but I know it's because of the pills or because of the withdrawal. I'm not um, an, a, a depressed person by nature. I'm actually a pretty upbeat person by nature. And I was extremely happy in that week, my oasis. So, so I was always like, you know, it'll fade. I call it, I think in my book, I call it like the depression monster, the monster that like shows his ugly head every once and again. I'm like, okay, it will pass. It will pass. It will pass. But after about, I would say 12 days, I was like, it's just, it's just intolerable. The depression, mostly, I, I had a lot of uh, physical complaints. I wasn't sleeping, but uh, it, that period of time I was the really, I'm really mentally severely depressed because of this cut. Again, a lot of things are happening. I discover that the cut that I did was like 70% of my dose, which is way too much. You know, it's this is where it gets insane, right? Because you want to cut small dosages, but then 10 max, 10% is kind of the maximum that um, they advise on the boards. But, you know, I would even say just do the smallest amount that you can, maybe 1%, maybe even less than a percent or 2% or 3%, something really low, especially in these in the region that I was in on three and a half milligrams. So now shit is happening. A, a lot of shit is happening. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I go back, I updose to 3.5 because I'm like, okay, 3.25, that's intolerable. So at that point, I feel like I don't have another choice than to actually add liquid to my taper. I make the arrangements. I have this bottle, which I had to pay for, um, in the house. Um, right. So I have the taper, and I, I remember asking, could I do a combo? Because that would save me some money if I do a part pill and a part liquid. Now, this whole liquid, and it was just a lot of hassle. It was a lot of hassle. I had a syringe. I don't think it was, like, good quality. 
And um, I think within the syringe, the smallest amount that I could reduce was 0.02. However, I don't know why I decided this, but I was like, ah, oh, that is like that, then it's going to take really long. And I don't want that. So let like, 3.25 was apparently too much. So let me go to 3.4. What follows is two months of barely sleeping. I'm like, I call it the prison of insomnia. It was so horrible. And it got really bad this time, the insomnia. Again, though, again, though, this like, insomnia was like most of my taper, most of my taper. Like, and as the weeks and the months go by, because, in, you know, this whole process of not sleeping, barely sleeping is taking me about two months. And this oasis that was like, it just seems so far back. I'm like, I'm barely remembering the oasis. I know it was there. I know it was happy. I know it was well. But it just does not seem to return to me. I'm just not sleeping. It's just horrible. Despite the promethazine, despite the melatonin, nothing seems to work. And I have more endurance now and then than before when it comes to insomnia. But at any given point, I, I call it my inner Zen master. At any given point, if, it, if insomnia is so bad, at some point, this inner Zen master is just going to cave as well. Like, oh, Girl, we ain't, we dying, we dying, you's in danger, you're not sleeping. And, right, so I am just trapped in a, in a prison of insomnia, and it's just awful. It's really awful, and it also kind of, I, I'm expecting to get better now, and I'm, it's just not working. So I think quite early on, after the cut from 3.5 to 3.4, I decide very early on, having just barely sleeping on, okay, so the next step that I'm going to do is going to be... Uh, a cut of 0.02 milligrams slash milliliters. But, you know, two months later, I'm I'm not sleeping. It's horrible. I am exhausted. I'm so exhausted, but I'm actually getting physical. I'm getting sick from the not sleeping. I I have a sore lip. I um I look super shitty. I'm exhausted. I'm I'm getting kind of fluish and I just feel that my body is craving sleep but not getting it and it's really causing yeah a lot of symptoms including um what's that virus called well, for the sore lip uh, herpes so i have herpes on my lip and i just feel horrible 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 so at the time i'm listening to all of the episodes of geraldine burns's podcast called benzodiazepine awareness and there's like two episodes that I learn a lot of. So in one episode, there's someone promoting her book. And basically what she says in the interview is that she decided to indefinitely hold the taper. I was like, what? My first thoughts were like, what the fuck? Like, why? Why would you do that? Like, we all want to come off right. And I was like deeply fascinated and confused that you know, this happened or someone did that. And because the Ashton manual doesn't, it's great, but it doesn't mention indefinitely holding your dose. I couldn't find anything on Benzo buddies about that. You know, it was either you're, you, you are a success because you got to the zero or you're in withdrawal, you're tapering, but I could not find anything about indefinite holding. So I was like, I, I got to go and read this book. I got to go get this book and I got to read it. But at the time I was at the 3.4 milligrams. I was mixing pills with liquid and I was just utterly exhausted. So I wanted to read the book, but I was like, I'm so exhausted. I need to sleep and because I won't be able to process anything in this current condition. So I'm like, let me get the fuck stable. <laughs> let me get some fucking sleep. And once I do, I'll go read that book.
but the exhaustion is taking its toll on me. I think it's like two months into holding my dose of 3.4 milligrams mixing liquid and, and pills. And I just, I, my condition worsens, you know, I'm caving, my body is caving from the insomnia, I'm dropping things. And then two months in, I break the bottle of liquid diazepam slash Valium. And I feel relief, like the bottle breaks into like a thousand pieces all over the kitchen floor. My partner comes rushing, like, oh, we have to save this 66 year olds worth of diazepam slash Valium. And I was like, no, I'm so done. I'm so exhausted. I'm so done of this process. I'm so done of hassling with the liquid and the pills. I am done. I am not doing this anymore. I was like, really, I was just done. I was really done. And then I was kind of faced with an encroach problem, like, okay, so the liquid is out of the equation now, so how do I continue on? And that was basically me thinking like, okay, then I have to go back from 3.4 to 3.5. So I did that. Now, I didn't get relief, and I was still kind of bothered with the cutting of the pills. It was so annoying. Um, but then aha moments start to hit me because I had listened to two episodes of Geraldine Burns' podcast, one with a woman that is indefinitely holding. The other one was a man and his story was also grueling. Like a lot of these stories are horror stories basically, but he, he was doing well according to himself on the, on the episode. And there was something that he said, and it, it took me a bit to kind of process that and just, kind of like puzzle pieces came, fell down or something. I don't know how to explain this, but he was saying in the interview, like, you know, I, he got down to six milligrams of Valium slash diazepam, and then he switched totally to liquid because he was saying something like, you know, there's only so much that you can do with the pills at any given point. I'm like, okay, he went, he switched at six milligrams of Valium, and here I am dicking around with 3.5 this is insane. So I was like, okay, so this guy, at least I think he knows he's taking the exact same dose. Where with me, I was like, you know, I cannot cut these pills evenly, so I'm not really sure. And then with the book of the woman who is indefinitely holding, she says that she was holding or is holding at five milligrams of volume. I'm like, then, then the aha moments came to me like, okay, but that's one tablet. So these two people... On the podcast, I think that, that it's pretty sure that, that they are sure that they're taking the exact same amount. And that's when I started to think like, you know, I have been doing this all wrong. You know, I should have never be cutting pills in one fourth or one eighth of a pill at this low a dose. So I think the, the I went from 3.4 to 3.5. And I was like, okay, that's, that's an updose. But I'm like, you know what? I'm so, I was so exhausted. I was so, I was really, I was done. Again, I was done. I was so exhausted. And I was like, you know, I'm not, this is not right. I am so sensitive to these cuts and the different kind of blood serum levels. So I decide within like two or three days to updose to four milligrams of diazepam slash Valium. Not ideal, but I was like, at least then I know that I'm taking the exact amount of benzos. Anyways, even though I'm super tired still, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to have to read the, the book. And I read the book and it was such a good book in my opinion. And the whole kind of concept of indefinitely holding got a hold of me. Like I was like, okay, so 
nobody wants that. Like nobody wants to keep on taking benzos or most of the people that I was in touch with or am with and myself, it's not a perfect outcome, but I think it is a way where we just say, look, I've been through hell and back. I I've been doing my best, but the symptoms are overwhelming. I'm not sleeping. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, realize still like I realized like you know I did such a rapid super fast taper if I had done a slow slow taper which I should have done in my opinion I would have been so much higher than the four milligrams of diazepam slash Valium so it was like you know I went super fast so basically for me it was like the pause button the pause on suffering the pause the pause button I'm hitting the pause button because basically for months I have been suffering and I was like you know Maybe I will stabilize. And, you know, this person that wrote a book seems stable. Um, I gathered that she was working and that she just, she was living her life. Yes, with benzos, on benzos, on the Valium. And for me, I was thinking like, I, I have this oasis. So, and that was when I held my dose for in total of 38 days. And I, I got a little bit better after 30. I was like, well, maybe it's in the cards for me. And, you know, I used to be somewhat stable. My original benzo wasn't great, not not at all, but I wasn't symptomatic when I was on my high dose of benzodiazepine, at least not physical symptoms. Um, so I was like, if I can get to that oasis again, maybe even better, but if there is a possibility for me to get into that zone where I'm feeling good, then maybe if I do a slow taper later or I wait or whatever... Or maybe I'm just going to have to accept that I'm going to be dependent on benzos for a longer period of time. Maybe it basically indefinite holding is indefinite. You don't say I'm going to not quit anymore. I'm not going to taper anymore. You're just saying just not right now. And I was like, wow, no one told me about this option. I wish someone did, you know, then still it's your option if you want to do that. Yes or no. But like Benzo Buddies and the Ashton Manual, great, 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 great things, but they're all so focused on coming off. They're also like, they, you have to get to the zero, you know, hold and cu cut and hold, cut and hold, mic, whatever. Everything is just extremely focused on coming off of benzodiazepines. And I, I get it, I do, but in some cases, so for example, this book, it shows this was the first thing like, okay, this person has a good life indefinitely holding her, their dose. And by then I had educated myself so much about benzodiazepines. I had listened to so many podcasts. I had checked YouTube. Um, I heard so many stories of people that were getting off or are getting off, whatever, and this book to me was a revelation. Like, and you know, this can happen to anyone. Maybe possibly someone listening to this podcast will be like, oh, I, I didn't think about that before, or I've never even heard about it. And it's, it made me think. And I think that's why it's so important for there being so many personal stories out there, because you'll just hear that one particular story and relate to it. And I think that I'm not alone in where, you know, you get so sick and you want to know what's going on with you, but maybe even more, you just want to know what to do, what could possibly relieve you of some suffering. And, you know, I was there. I was like, 
I need something to, you know, I need to hold on to something so I'll survive this. You know, is there a way to suffer the least amount? And I think, again, this book was a re- revelation to me. I was like, wow, wow, I never considered it. And to me, this book will always be in my heart. And even if it doesn't work, uh, the same way because you know everyone's story is very very unique um and i think i'll never be able to describe what that book did for me and how it changed my way of thinking it got really really deep uh, on a, on an almost spiritual level where i was like you know there's there can be so much suffering involved in this process so much you maybe you've been there i hope not but you know how wow how dark it gets and i was like even if there's like a small chance that i will be able to get to a point of acceptance perhaps where i am still actively on the drug but benzo wise right so you know the drugs are bad for you you've done your research you've been through the hell of benzos and withdrawal um but then making that decision which i think is just so brave i think it's so brave to make a decision where you know how horrible these drugs are and what they can cause and also no guarantees right because i had heard about tolerance and just knowing that this drug is so bad but then getting to a point in your life where you're like you know I really want to be free of this physical dependency, but I choose life, maybe somewhat limited. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, just making that just bold choice to stay on a drug because for whatever, you can have any reason. You can have any reason. Um, Maybe you have to take care of your kids. Maybe you just can't be sick. You know, I know we can't dictate that, right? Some people just are sick all the time. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of say in it. <sighs> but this book and where this person was in 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 her life, I just thought it was think still. It's such a bold decision to be like I know these drugs are bad, but I choose not to taper because I know what'll happen or at least you know you think you know what will happen, you'll probably get sick, you'll probably get symptoms. And I was so amazed that if you're Benzo Wise and you're going through everything and, you know, you're you're trying to come off as safe as possible. And like for me, trying to educate the world, (laughs) sharing my story, um, knowing that they're so bad. And then the the choice, like, you know, I know that they're bad. I know I should maybe taper. And and, well, that's that's debatable, I would say. But you know that Probably if you're completely off the drug after an X amount of time, you will probably, hopefully, get better. Um, But then making that choice, I just, amazing, amazing. And that really changed my whole thought process because I had been suffering for so long. And I, I guess that's, well, first of all, I had the memory of the Oasis, um, such a good week in comparison of the suffering in June. Um, that, you know, it was like, maybe that's in the cards for me and just, okay, 
it was just mind blowing to me. It it is. It was just mind blowing. Like okay, um, but at the very least, at the very least, for me, it kind of made me think like okay, I could give it a shot. I could give it a try to do a pause. I mean, people do hold at some point. They usually go on, but I don't know an indefinite hold, a pause button. I personally didn't see, don't see the harm in that. Um, maybe it, it won't work for everybody. Um, that's that would be a shame. But what if it actually wor- works? I was like, so what if it works? What if I get to be one of those people that has a good life too? And that's all I want. We all want normal. We all want healthy. Um, at the same time, we want off. So it's like a constant conflict for myself. I will speak for myself. I get it. I, I really do. Just, I just wanted to say that I read something, a, a personal story, and I was just so deeply moved and inspired by it. So by the end of this episode, I updosed the four milligrams. Um, I'm, I'm planning on indefinitely holding my dose. And well, one of the things that I can share with you guys for this episode is that it just relieved me of a lot of stress. I had no guarantees at all if it was going to work. If I was going to be symptomatic, if things were going to change for the better, for the worse, I had zero clue. But just the fact that I had been cutting and liquids, like all these stressors were in the mix. And those were gone once I decided to, A, take two tablets of two milligrams of diazepam slash Valium. So that was like, okay, I cannot make any errors by taking just two pills. This is like the same dose. That relieved me of a lot of stress, which I, I was just, I wasn't able to cope with the stress of micro tapering or whatever, hassling with liquids or whatever. So instantly I felt relief in the sense of this, the psychology behind this whole taper. Like, okay, I don't have to stress. Am I getting the exact amount of benzodiazepines in my system? That was gone and was really helpful. And then the indefinite hold is like, you know, I don't have to think about the next cut because I'm indefinitely holding. So those things were really helpful for me at that period of time. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash